We are in a series called Night Vision, and we're talking about seeing God in the dark. And several of you, many of you, have heard parts of our story of our journey with our daughter, Abby. My daughter, Abby, is seven, going to be eight in September, if you can believe that. Some of you remember watching her run around here when she was little. And many of you know that the first three years of her life were a pretty intense medical journey. And I want to tell you a little piece of the story today that comes from early on in her life. Uh, When she was born, we knew that she had an extra toe on her right foot. It was a thumb in in the arch. It was really unique. Um, She had a kidney that was in the wrong place. And she had a reflux in her urinary tract system. So she was already on an antibiotic as a prophylaxis, even at one month old. What we didn't know was that she had a hole in her heart. And so her heart was stealing all of the calories that she was taking just to keep the blood circulation. And so as she progressed through her first few months, she was a failure to thrive baby because she was not developing. She wasn't sitting up. She wasn't holding her chin up. She wasn't doing any of the things that a baby does. But we didn't know that there was a hole in her heart. So I remember very distinctly going to her four-month checkup and saying to our pediatrician, who by then we had had for five years, we knew him well and he knew us well, and I said, you need to give me the every baby develops at its own pace talk. And he, knowing me not to be a mom who gets real riled about things, said, explain a little bit more, Jennifer. And by the time we left that four-month checkup, We had a referral to Emanuel Hospital in Portland. Words had been spoken like syndrome and cerebral palsy, and we were cast into the darkness of the unknown. And I think so often in our life, it's the unknown that can be the thickest darkness. We'd way rather know what the enemy is and how we're going to face it than be in this unknown where you can barely see your hand in front of your face. And as my husband and I drove away from that four-month checkup, I'm so grateful he was with me. So often I did the kids' checkups by myself, but this one he was with me, and I see the hand of God in that. And as we drove down 12th Street, 13th, whichever one goes back into town, we were talking about the unknown for our baby girl. And one of the things that came up between us was the fact that in life, light shines up the brightest against a dark backdrop. Think about it. If you go to a jeweler and they want to show off their best diamond, what are they going to do? They're going to lay it on a black velvet cloth and it's going to shine off every facet and every place where it reflects the light and every unique thing about that diamond. And the same is true for you and for me. That when darkness is in our life and our lives are lived against the backdrop of darkness, The reflection of God in us shines brighter. The facets of how we were created show off. The beauty of the way that God made us shines the most brightly against a dark backdrop. And that day as we drove, my husband and I said, if our call is to shine bright by having a dark backdrop, then so be it. Now hear me. I am not saying that I think God brings darkness so that his light can shine. I am saying that in the darkness of our world, God shines bright. And we, his people, shine like stars in the universe when we will follow him against the backdrop of the brokenness and the darkness of our world. And that is what we find happening in the book of Esther. As we uh, have been in this series, Steve has talked about Job and about lament as Laura walked us through today. Susan talked about Jeremiah and about 
adapting to where we live and living in the land that we are brought into. And if you missed either of those, you can always catch those on the podcast. I really encourage it. They actually have several years of sermons. Um, I was looking at them this last week. It's a great resource, a great resource for teaching. So today we're going to look at Esther. Starting in Esther chapter 1, we find that Esther is living in the time of King Xerxes. What I want to just set up as the as the framework here for what, what's happening, I'm not a historian, but here's what I do understand about the time in, in Israel when Esther was living, was that there was the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, by, and Babylonians took them away into exile. And then sometime later, there was the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah, and Babylonians also took them into exile, and that was when Jerusalem fell. And it was about 50 years after Jerusalem fell that we find the stories of Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel's time was about 50 years after the fall of Jerusalem, and Esther is about 100 years after Daniel. What has happened is the Babylonians have now been conquered by the Persians, and so these people who've been exiled for over 100 years now find themselves under a Persian kingdom and a Persian king named Xerxes. So we find that in the third year of the reign of King Xerxes, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. It tells us that the celebration lasted for 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. It was 180 days of pride and vanity and celebration. And when those 180 days were all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. So he threw out rank, and he threw out social status, and he brought everyone into the palace garden of the king, and he gave them seven days of celebration. As a matter of fact, it specifically says... By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So, just imagine it. All the people, from the least to the greatest. No judgment in this, but there were people there who were rabble-rousers, who were not having integrity. They were all there. They'd been drinking for seven days. And into this, the king says, bring Queen Vashti with her royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. And in a culture where women are covered from head to toe, where women are practiced in hiding, where women can't go out unless they have a male escort, the king invites her to come and show off her beauty in front of all the men from the least to the greatest who've been drinking for seven days. This is an incredibly inappropriate request given by a king who is driven by his pride and his vanity, and he wants everybody to see how beautiful his wife is. And she, quite reasonably, I think, refused. But this made the king furious. One of the things we learn about King Xerxes in the first few chapters of this book is that he's a man with a quick temper. And he's also a man who's highly influenced by his friends and advisors because he immediately turns to his advisors and I'm fascinated by what they say. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. 
Do you hear the personal in, uh, investment they have in this advice that they're giving? So if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree a law of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be revoked. And we need to notice that short sentence and remember it. But a law of the Persians and the Medes cannot be revoked. Once a king has stamped, sealed, and sent out a decree, it can't be revoked even by the king himself. We find that in the story of Daniel and we find it again here in the story of Esther. Once he's said it, the king can't take it back. And this time he made the order that the Queen Vashti should forever be banished from the presence of the king and the king should choose another queen. And the king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed their counsel. We're going to find that over and over again, he follows the counsel of the people that advise him. It happens again in the next chapter when he's missing Queen Vashti and he's lonely. And so his advisors say, round up all the beautiful women who aren't already taken and bring them to the, cat, to the palace and then you can choose one to be your queen. And he thought this was good advice, so he did it. Now picture this with me. There's a sense that we could think, oh, what an honor to be seen as beautiful and to be invited into the king's beauty pageant and maybe have a chance to be chosen queen, kind of like the Miss America pageant. But the difference is the winner of this gets to be queen, but the rest of the contestants don't get to go home. They come, they spend a year being prepared to go to the king, they go and they spend their night with the king, and then they go to a second harem for his concubines, and they only return to the king if he remembers them and asks for them by name. Have you ever wondered how many names he remembered? In that second harem were women Beautiful, with passion and desires and lives and purpose. And they spent the remainder of their days in a harem with no family and no future. It sounds more like slavery or sex trafficking than an honor. And into this is brought Esther, a young Jewish girl. She's from a people who've been in exile for over 100 years. She's an orphan who lost her parents and has been raised by a cousin. And by the advice of this cousin, she does not tell them when she's brought into the harem that she is a Jew. And as she goes through her year of preparation, she finds favor in the eyes of all who are a part of this. And the time comes for her to go to the king. And it says, the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. So she won. She got to be queen. And she's still a little more than a slave waiting for the king to call her by name. Her cousin Mordecai took up his position at the king's gate. I don't know if he was there before Esther was chosen, but I know that the story, whenever it brings up Mordecai, we find him at the king's gate. Mordecai is a networker. This guy has his eyes open and his ears open and he's noticing things and he's listening to people and he has contacts and he, he has people around the city know Mordecai. And as a result of that, one of the things Mordecai finds out about is that there's these two men who are plotting to assassinate the king. He shares that with Esther. Esther shares it with the king in Mordecai's name, and the king's life is spared. And it's recorded in the books that Mordecai saved the king's life, but nothing was ever done for him. Into this season comes Haman. Haman is a guy who's been climbing the corporate ladder in the kingdom, and he finds himself the right-hand man of the king. He's second in authority only to the king, and all throughout the city of Susa, people have to bow to him because of his power and authority. But Mordecai won't bow. 
whether it's Mordecai's pride or his stubbornness or his belief in a one true God and he won't bow and worship someone else, he will not bow. Word gets to Haman that Mordecai is not bowing and Haman is mad and Haman has all power in the kingdom and he's gonna get Mordecai. But when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, he decides he's not just gonna take down Mordecai, he's gonna take all of this people, all of this nation. And so we find in chapter three that Haman goes before the king and he makes this request. There's a certain race of people, starting in verse eight, there's a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. So for one man's grudge and a whole lot of money, the king agreed to wipe out an entire nation of people. He has no value on human life. He has no sense of what other people think. He's influenced and swayed by what other people think and what they tell him. He has a hot temper and total control, and this is a bad combination. So a day is set for the Jews to be attacked, and the decree is signed and sealed, and it's sent out to all of the provinces that are ruled by King Xerxes, a decree that cannot be revoked. And of course, Mordecai hears about it, and Mordecai tears his clothes and puts ashes on himself and goes through the city wailing. And when Esther hears that this is what Mordecai is doing, she sends a message out to him. Mordecai, why are you in sackcloth and ashes and wailing? And he sends back the message to Esther. And she hears that her people have been condemned to death. She hears that an irrevocable decree has been sent to the entire kingdom. And Mordecai encourages her to go to the king and plead for her people. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 11. It's on page 800 if you're following along. She says, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. Now I have to confess, when I've heard this story before, I kind of thought, she's pretty, she's worried about something that's not going to happen, of course the king is going to extend his scepter to her. But as I put myself in her place, as I prepared for this message... Realizing we've got a hot-tempered, easily influenced by his advisors, man full of pride and vanity, who banished one because she didn't come when he called, what's he going to do to the one who comes when he didn't call when the law is in place that if you come when he doesn't call, you die, unless he's in a good mood? Esther's entire life was banking on whether or not he was in a good mood. And she says, I can't do that. And Mordecai sends this message back to her in verse 13. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Mordecai invites Esther to recognize what she was made for, and he invites courage to rise. See, when we are in the darkness, one of the things that we see is that courage 
rises and that we are stronger than we think we are and that by God's grace, we have more wisdom than we have in the natural. And courage is invited to rise. And Esther said this, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. You see, Esther recognized the one step that she was being given, and she clearly recognized that it very well could be the last step of her life. I want to pause in the storytelling to unpack a little bit of this part of the story because I think in Esther's response, we see a way that we can have courage rising in our own dark times. The first thing is that Esther had awareness. She had an honest assessment of the circumstances. There was no denial going on. She wasn't turning a blind eye. She knew the king that she was married to. She knew the rules of the land and she knew the risk that she was taking. She looked it in the face and she had awareness of what it was. I think you and I sometimes, especially at the front end of our dark times or our challenges, spend a little bit too long in denial and trying to pretend like there really isn't a problem and it really doesn't involve me. She had awareness. The next thing she had was acceptance. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, is God calling me to action? And Esther recognized that God was calling her to action and she accepted that she had a part to play. And in the darkness that you and I face, we have a part to play. And it's going to be different depending on our role. If you look at the story of Esther, Esther had a different role than Mordecai, and Mordecai had a different role than the rest of the Jews of Susa, but all of them had a role. And in the same way, we might be the one in the center of the crisis, and we have one role. And then we might have our family and our caregivers, and they have another role. And then we have people who know us and are familiar with the situation, but are kind of outside of the realm of influence, but they have a role as well. And we need to recognize when we see darkness, is God asking us to action and accept the role that he is asking us to play? And then, once she looked at it, accepted that she had a part, she asked for help. And I honestly think that sometimes this is the hardest part for us, to admit our need and ask for help. Esther said, you fast and I'll fast. In fasting, they were asking God for help. They were seeking his wisdom and his strategy for how to proceed with this. They were asking for his favor in her approaching the king. And she asked for help from her community. She said, will you stand with me in my crisis? Will you stand with me while I put my life on the line, my reputation on the line? Will you stand with me? Years ago, during Abby's medical journey, I had a friend in my Bible study who heard me bringing my, Bible, my prayer requests every week. See, about six or, seven weeks, um, six or seven weeks after Abby's diagnosis, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And while I was taking Abby to the hospital for surgeries, my mom was at a separate hospital having her own surgeries. And my Bible study friend said, Jennifer, can I come and help? I said, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> and about three or four weeks later, she said, Jennifer, I have Friday off. Can I come and help? Oh, no, 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 I'm fine. And this dear woman who just exudes the spiritual gift of helps and service, who just wants to serve in any way she can, said one more time, Jennifer, I have Friday off and I will be at your house at nine. And I said, okay. <laughs> and that friend came to my house for five years every week. 
What started as doing my dishes and my laundry, even letting herself into my house, picking up all my dirty laundry, taking it home and bringing it back clean the next day, turned into a weekly date with my daughter who looked forward every week as she grew to her date with this precious friend. And the only reason she stopped coming to my house weekly is because my daughter started kindergarten. But she's still my go-to, and she still will call me up and say, I need an Abby date. Matter of fact, about six months into this relationship, she looked at me and she said, by the way, I hope you know, once you have me, you have me forever. (laughs) And I learned that when we admit our need and we ask for help, we have people who stand with us, and we can survive and thrive and let the courage rise in us. And when we receive that from them, they receive a gift as well. And they are blessed. And our friendship is a mutual friendship that I felt guilty about. In my independent state, why can't I take care of my own house? I felt guilty about not being able to do my own dishes and laundry. And yet, with all the medical stuff and the volunteer role that I was doing here, I was able to enter into the giftedness that God had given me because she entered into the gifts that God had given her. And that's what happens when we ask for help in our community. And once she had asked for help, she recognized that it was time for action. And in that action, she had to take a risk. And that risk had no guarantee of the outcome. See, we like to know the whole picture and see what the solution is going to be. Sure, I'll stick my neck out, but only if I know that it's going to work out. Only if I know that there's going to be success. And friends, we don't often get that picture. In the midst of our darkness, sometimes all we can see is one step ahead. God will give us one step But sometimes all we see is the one step. And there's no guarantee of the outcome. Esther said, if I must die, I must die. I will act, but I don't know how it's going to end. Paul said a similar thing. When he was on his journey back to Jerusalem, after his missionary journeys throughout Asia, he was headed back, and along the way, all of the people said, Paul, don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go to Jerusalem, because they knew in Jerusalem that most likely imprisonment was waiting. And Paul said in Acts 20, he said, I am compelled by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. And though I don't know what will happen, I am told by the Holy Spirit in city after city that pain and suffering await, yet my life is worth nothing unless I will complete the task that God has given me. My life is worth nothing unless I will take the step that is before me with no entitlement to know the outcome or to have the outcome be happily ever after. See, we love the happily ever after, don't we? I don't watch movies unless I know it's a happily ever after. I mean, life has enough drama. I don't need somebody else's fake drama. (laughs) We love the good ending. And quite honestly, Esther has a good ending. She approached the king. He received her. She exposed Haman's plan. The king hung Haman. Haman tried to destroy Mordecai, but he was humiliated by Mordecai. The king recognized that Mordecai had saved his life, and Haman actually ended up having to walk through town with Mordecai on the king's horse with the king's robe, saying, this is what happens to a man the king wants to honor. And then Haman was hung on a noose that he had prepared for Mordecai. And Mordecai was brought into the king's presence. He was raised up to be the second in command of the nation. And remembering that a decree cannot be revoked, they couldn't say don't kill the Jews, but they sent out a new decree giving the Jews permission to defend themselves. And they did defend themselves, and it saved their people, and it saved their nation. And they still celebrate it today as the festival of Purim. We love happy endings. Abby has a happy ending. Abby's almost eight years old. She's thriving. She's developmentally on track. She had open heart surgery at seven months, which repaired the hole in her heart. 
We're so grateful for the miracle that God did through the medical community, and she's doing great. We love happy endings, but what about the times when it's not a happy ending? So they're saved in the time of Esther, and then there's the Holocaust. You see, we say night vision, what do we learn about God in the dark? And we look at the story of Esther and we say, God is faithful and God is good and God will show up. We can even say, and it's true, God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, not once. And we can say, in your darkness, remember that God is moving and he's acting on your behalf, even when you don't see him and even when you don't hear him. And that is truth and it's a reason for our hope. This story preaches, people, God is good. But what about mudslides and school shootings and rocket fire and retaliatory ground attack and plane crashes and tornadoes? Is God still good? Is he still faithful? See, we don't like to look these ones in the face. We like to talk about Esther and the good stories. But if we will not look this in the face and ask the hard questions, we will become irrelevant in this world. Because people who do not know God are asking these questions. They're saying, you believe in God, where is he when innocent children die? When people with a lot of life left to live die from cancer? Where is your God? And if we do not have a foundation to stand on, we will become irrelevant to the world. When we have an opportunity to let courage rise in us and shine like stars in the darkness. You see, I don't know the answers to the suffering, but this is what I do know. We live in the time between the times. There was the time in the Garden of Eden when all was perfection before the deception of the enemy and the fall of man and the fall of creation. And there's a time coming when God's kingdom comes in all of its fullness and we enter eternity and there will be no more pain and no more sorrow. Those are the perfect times. We don't live there. We live here. We live in the time between the times. We live in the time that Jesus came. And Jesus came into our time to show us how to bring the kingdom of God to bear in the darkness of the brokenness of this world. And he demonstrated healing, and he demonstrated redemption, and he demonstrated restoration. And he gave us a promise of his kingdom. And he said that we could enter in with his kingdom. And we do enter in with his kingdom. We have the promise and the fulfillment of God's kingdom, but we do not have the perfection of his kingdom. We still live in a battle. Revelations says it like this. This is Revelation 12 in verse 7. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. You and I were born onto a planet where there was a battle raging. Ephesians talks about the battle this way. 
Ephesians 6.12, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There is a battle raging that you and I do not see, and that battle is the source of all the darkness that you and I live in. Even creation is drawn into this battle. Romans 8 says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, the curse that was a result of the deception in the Garden of Eden. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. There's an author that writes about this battle. His name is John Eldridge, and he says this. We are at war. I don't like that fact any more than you do. But the sooner we come to terms with it, the better hope we have of making it through to the life we do want. This is not Eden. You probably figured that out. (laughs) This is not Mayberry. This is not Seinfeld's world. And this is not Survivor. The world in which we live is a combat zone, a violent clash of kingdoms, a bitter struggle unto the death. I am sorry if I'm the one to break this news to you. You were born into a world at war, and you will live all your days in the midst of a great battle involving all the forces of heaven and hell and played out here on earth. Friends, this battle requires courage, and our courage rises when we recognize that we can be a piece of bringing the promised kingdom to the sphere of influence that we have. We can be a taste of heaven. I've heard it said that for those who don't know God, this earth is the closest thing they will ever know to heaven. And for those who do know God, this earth is the closest thing we will ever know to hell. Because you see, Jesus came and demonstrated his kingdom and as his people, we walk in his kingdom and God's Holy Spirit is present on this earth. So for those who don't know God, this is the closest they will ever come to heaven. There is healing and restoration and redemption at work in this place, in this present time. We have hope for the hand of God now. And yet, we live in the time between the times when the battle still rages and there is still death and pain and suffering and brokenness and violence and injustice, and broken relationships, and financial ruin, and lost jobs, and children who walk away from God, and we grieve, and we struggle, and we groan, and for those of us who have the hope of eternity to look forward to, this is the closest thing we will ever feel to hell, and living in this place takes courage. Living in this place takes hope. And our hope is not based on knowing the outcome. Yes, we do have hope for a redemptive outcome now, but our final hope is not in what the outcome is here. Our final hope is in the fact that death does not win. The enemy that was cast down from heaven that wreaks havoc on this earth does not get to continue. There is a time when our king is coming for us. There is a time when Jesus is coming back and there is a time when he is bringing the perfection of his kingdom to bear here. And we don't live there yet. And yet when we allow courage to rise, when we will live in the darkness with a firm belief in God and we will not let go of our belief in a God who is good, even in the face of darkness, we sparkle like a diamond on a black backdrop and we reflect God's glory and we demonstrate the way that he created and his goodness and we show off who he is in the midst of a battle that breaks his heart. See, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because he knew that God's will would be opposed at every turn and that you and I could play a part in demonstrating that will to people who do not yet know him. When our courage rises in the dark, God's kingdom is shown forth to those who need to see hope. We cannot lose hope in the darkness. We base our hope on the king who is coming. And I want to say this, this hope of eternity, when I was younger, I've heard this all my life, and it used to just be a pat answer. Someone would pass away and I'd hear, oh, it's okay, they're in heaven with Jesus now. It's okay. And I want to say to me, it felt like people were trying to stuff suffering and grief under the rug and say it's not okay to hurt because we believe that there's an eternity. Yes, we believe in eternity. Yes, it's our greatest hope, but it does not minimize the battle wounds of living in this world and it does not minimize our suffering and our grief. Pain and hope can coexist in the same place. Our hope of eternity is not a pat answer. It's the bedrock on which we build our lives. May we be people who face our darkness with courage rising. Let's pray. God, I am well aware that in a room this size, the courage needed and the darkness that is faced is as varied as the number of people in the room. And so for each person in this room, I pray that you would come and meet them with your presence in their place of struggle or crisis or pain. I pray that you would show yourself present and acting. I pray for your healing and your restoration and your redemption of the brokenness in their situations in Jesus' name. And I pray for the courage to take the step that is before them in trusting the outcome to you. God, we release our outcomes to you, believing in your goodness for eternity. In your name, amen.